This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. Thank you for joining me today upon my return from my mini vacation during which I did nothing but work constantly. Today's episode is a rough one. It's recent. It's local to me. It's one I've got personal ties to in a number of different ways. But most importantly, it's one that after seven years still has no resolution. And that's why we're going to talk about it today, because a family is still hurting and needs answers. And I know, I know that someone out there listening to this episode has them. I'm going to be leaving a lot of names out today. My general policy is that if names have been used in the media, I will use them too. But In this case, a lot of the information I have is from police files and interviews with the people involved. So if it feels like I'm leaving out important names and details, it's not because I don't know them or because I don't have them. It's because these are details that haven't been shared publicly, and I am not going to be the person to do that. So take a deep breath, because it's time for a very special dead time story. And this one begins with a poem. Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod one night sailed off in a wooden shoe, sailed on a river of crystal light into a sea of dew. Where are you going, and what do you wish? The old man asked the three. We have come to fish for the herring fish that live in this beautiful sea. Nuts of silver and gold have we, said Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod. To most of the world, Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod is a children's fairy tale, a bedtime story, a weird poem that quite honestly does not make any sense at all. But to the residents of Lansing, Michigan, it means something else entirely. Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod is the name of Lansing's most iconic landmark, a trio of towering smokestacks attached to the Board of Water and Light's coal-fueled power plant on the banks of the Grand River in an area known as Rio Town. Built in 1980, the 620-foot stacks are, by far, the tallest structure in the capital city and can be seen for miles on a clear day. For many of us, the stacks are a symbol of home. Growing up, when my family would go on trips out of town, we'd be coming back late at night, and I always knew we were almost home when I saw the smokestacks twinkling orange lights hiding amongst the stars. Wink and Blinkin and Nod are constant, stoic members of the community silently observing the goings-on of Rio Town and beyond. And it's really too bad about the silent part, because if they could talk, they could tell us what happened in their shadows one summer night in 2014 when two boys went for a walk along the Grand River and only one returned. 
Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Anna Luisa, who is currently offering a 10% discount on their entire website for So Dead fans. If you use our fancy link, analuisa.com slash so dead. We all love shiny things, right? Anna Luisa, I might be saying it wrong, but it's spelled A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. Anna Luisa is a company that was founded to bring clarity to the jewelry industry. They design their pieces with recycled materials, whatever possible, in small batches that are kind to the earth, and the result is stunning. Now that we're all finally kind of starting to get back out there in the world, we all want to look pretty. I personally am a necklace gal. Uh, Anna Luisa has a wide selection of fun, timeless necklaces that are perfect for layering. They've got the cutest, daintiest little rings that are really good for stacking, and they've got a terrific selection of earrings and bracelets. You can find great pieces for as low as just $39, and that is before the 10% discount for So Dead fans. And Anna Luisa's inventory is constantly changing. New jewelry collections are released every Friday, every week. I had so much fun picking out my pieces. I got a couple of gifts for family members, uh, and then I got myself the Nina, which is a gorgeous blue topaz necklace on the daintiest little chain. It's just enough sparkle to be stunning, but still perfectly understated. I get compliments on it every time that I wear it. And I want you guys to have pretty things too. So visit the link, analuisa.com slash so dead and treat yourself or a loved one using code so dead. That's S-O-D-E-A-D for 10% off anything on the website. I 100% recommend Ana Luisa. Their jewelry is beautiful and sustainable and I just love it. So check out analuisa.com slash so dead. That is a-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash so dead and use code so dead, S-O-D-E-A-D at checkout. All right, let's get down to business. Unless you're new here, you know that I'm a Lansing girl born and raised. If you too are a Lansternaut, then you know how small Michigan's capital city is, not geographically necessarily, but socially. Everyone knows everyone, and the people you don't know, either your kids went to school together, or you work for the same company, or your parents lived next door to each other growing up. Such is the case for me and a woman by the name of Shirley Michener. Our kids went to the same schools, Grand Ledge, although my boys were quite a few years younger than her kids. We both worked for the state of Michigan at the same time, in the same building, for the same department— Though we didn't meet until very recently, we had a lot of acquaintances in common. So when her youngest son, Brandon, died under suspicious circumstances in 2014, I heard about it, even though it was little more than a blip on the local news circuit at the time. But before we talk about that night, I want to talk a bit about the Michners. Shirley met her future husband and the father of her children in the early 1980s. She was 24 and working in her hometown of Farmington Hills, down near Detroit, as a mortgage broker. Stephen Michener was the brother of one of Shirley's good friends and co-workers. The first time Shirley laid her eyes on Stephen, she told her friend, I'm going to marry your brother. They laughed about it at the time, but Shirley knew what she was talking about because just a few years later, on June 29, 1985, Shirley and Stephen did, in fact, get married. June 29th is a very important date in the Mishner household. 
It's not only Shirley and Stephen's anniversary, it's also Stephen's birthday. Decades later, the date would become significant to the Michners for another reason entirely, and this one is nothing to celebrate. The Michners built a beautiful home and raised a beautiful family. By 1990, they had five children together, Bianca, Stephen, Rodney, Brianna, and Rashawn. In 1991, Shirley found out she was pregnant again, this time with triplets. Could you imagine being a mother of five and finding out you were going to have triplets? The Michener's shock turned to joy and then to grief as two of the triplets passed early in the pregnancy. The third baby survived. Uh, The rest of the pregnancy was without complications. And on May 27th, 1992, the Michener's welcomed their sixth child, a son they named Brandon James. Brandon was an old soul. He was good-natured, kind, always quick to offer advice when a friend or sibling needed it. A mama's boy, even as he got older. He used to tell Shirley that when he got married and had children, she would have to live with them because nobody else could cook like she could. Brandon was funny, always smiling. He was athletic. He went to Grand Ledge schools, which is where my kids also went. So I can tell you from experience that Grand Ledge is not the most diverse school district in mid-Michigan, and it can be rough on students of color. In fact, the district recently made headlines for that very reason, but that's another story entirely. If you're local, I'm sure you read all about it. But Brandon Mishner was popular. He had an infectious smile and everybody loved him. His friends called him Brandino. Basketball was Brandon's passion. He played all throughout elementary and middle school and he was good at it. But high school sports in Grand Ledge are a beast. Nonsensically so, some might say. So when Brandon entered high school at a height of about 5'6", he was deemed too short to continue his career with Grand Ledge Comets hoops regardless of his talent. And that devastated him. But Brandon was not one to let anything keep him down for too long. He graduated in 2010, and he enrolled in the marketing program at Lansing Community College, where he earned an associate's degree. He got a job working at the Menards in West Lansing, which it was fairly recent when I realized that Menards um, is just a Midwest thing. I didn't know that. So like Lowe's, Home Depot, other home improvement stores, they have those anywhere but Menards is specific to us here in the Midwest. So for those of you not from the Midwest, it's it's a hardware store, a home improvement store, basically. Anyway, Brandon stayed tight with his core group of friends, and he hung out with them on the weekends. He worked out religiously, and he was devoted to his fitness. And in 2013, he started his own business with a high school classmate, a clothing company called Make It Your Mission, or MIM. Make what your mission? To do the right thing. Brandon had no way of knowing how heartbreakingly ironic his motto would end up being. Brandon and his business partner, who has not been named publicly, so I won't be using his name today, were more acquaintances than friends. They went to school together, they had friends in common, but they didn't know each other really well until they decided to become business partners in 2013. Brandon's sister designed the MIM logo, a fist with the letters M-I-Y-M above it, and Brandon and his business partner started selling t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops. While the business was doing pretty well, Brandon's relationship with his business partner was not. 
Brandon felt like he was doing the lion's share of the work. He was a people person, a natural salesman, so he brought in the bulk of the sales. Tasks that were taken on by his business partner, Brandon felt like they weren't being done timely or up to his standards or sometimes not being done at all. The boys argued a lot, so by the summer of 2014, less than a year into their partnership, Brandon was looking for a way out. The last weekend in June of 2014 was a busy one in the Michener household. Remember, June 29th was both Brandon's dad's birthday and his parents' anniversary. To celebrate 29 years of marriage, Shirley and Stephen planned a getaway to Florida. They were scheduled to fly out of Detroit Metro Airport on the morning of Sunday the 29th, so the family celebrated Stephen's 57th birthday a day early on Saturday, June 28th. One topic of conversation at the party was Brandon's plans for that night. He was going out to celebrate an old high school friend's 21st birthday aboard a party bus, something he'd never done before. When Shirley tried to lecture him about being careful, he interrupted her and said, Mom, I got this. You trained me well. Those were some of the last words Brandon Michener ever said to his mother, and they haunt her to this day. Brandon had a big night planned, and Shirley and Stephen had an early morning the next day. So they wrapped up the party early, Brandon headed out with friends, and his parents finished packing and went to bed. Around 11 p.m., Shirley woke up and realized that she hadn't heard from Brandon since he left the house, but then she remembered him telling her that he was likely going to stay over with friends following the birthday party, so she went back to sleep. The next morning, June 29th, she and Stephen got up early and made their hour-and-a-half drive to Detroit. They boarded their flight to Tampa, and they touched down later that afternoon. They rented a car at the airport, then drove to their resort for a week of relaxation and celebration. Literally, as they were opening the door to their room after checking in, the phone rang. It was their eldest daughter, Bianca, calling to tell them that Brandon was missing. If you're going out for a night on the town in Lansing, the big three nightlife districts, if you could really call them that, are Rio Town, Old Town, and Downtown. Downtown being the biggest and the one in the middle, coincidentally. All three are in pretty close proximity to one another. And that last weekend in June, all three were hopping. For days, they'd been celebrating Lansing Beer Week. And that Saturday, the 28th, was the grand finale. The streets in Rio Town were actually shut down for an event called the Lansing Beer Fest, which is exactly what it sounds like. Beer literally flowing through the streets. Beer Fest ended at 6 p.m., at which point festival goers poured into the nearby bars, where there were specials and parties. It was just a boozy, boozy night in Lansing. More boozy than usual. And one of the bars that was basking in the uptick in business that night was Suits Tavern, located downtown at 210 South Washington Avenue. Most Lansing residents know it by its former name, Brannigan Brothers. Brannigan Brothers was not just a dive bar. It was a hot mess with a capital M. If you wanted to see fights, drama, Jerry Springer-type stuff, you went to Brannigan Brothers, which was why nobody was surprised when the bar's bouncers literally murdered a customer. New Year's Eve is one of the busiest nights of the year in downtown Lansing. I mean, in any bar or nightlife district, really. 
Such was the case at Brannigan Brothers on New Year's Eve in 2011. They were busy. People were fighting. One of the bouncers was fired just before midnight for using a billy club on a patron. You know, the usual. And then, right around 1 a.m., Travis Peterson walked in. Peterson was a 30-year-old factory worker in Lansing who was out celebrating the holiday with friends. He was quite intoxicated when he arrived at Brannigan Brothers, where he quickly got into an altercation with another patron and was ordered to leave. According to witness testimony, another altercation occurred with security as Travis was leaving the bar and he headbutted one of the bouncers. But then he left, or he tried to. I vaguely remember this incident. I wasn't following it super closely when it happened. So when I started researching it for this episode, I was shocked to realize that I know the star witness in this case. He was actually a pretty close friend for a little bit back in like middle school, high school, early high school. His name was shared publicly at the time, but because I still think of him as a cute little freckle-faced kid, uh, even though he's a fully grown-ass man at this point with a family, uh, I'm not going to tell you his name today. Anyway, so this childhood friend of mine, he didn't see the start of the altercation at Brannigan Brothers. He wisely, was not patronizing the city's most dangerous dive bar that night. He was leaving a bar across the street when he saw Travis Peterson, alone, walking away from Brannigan Brothers. One of the members of uh, my friend's party knew Travis from work and said hello to him. Travis said, can't talk right now. I gotta get out of here. I'm going home. And he proceeded to walk away from the bar, away from the bar. He didn't make it far. The doors of Brannigan Brothers burst open and a group of five men rushed out. They chased Travis down in the street. Uh, He was heard telling the men, I don't want a problem, I'm going home. But the men continued to pursue him down Washington Avenue. And when they caught up to him, they attacked. They punched him, kicked him. One of them pulled out a billy club and began beating him with it. As Travis lay on the ground, unconscious and bleeding profusely, The man with the billy club loomed over him and said, you don't mess with the Brannigan boys. That man was the bouncer who had been fired from Brannigan's earlier that night for using the billy club on another patron. His name was Donald Suttle. He was a 34-year-old ex-con living in Lansing following his recent release from prison on a second-degree murder charge. In 1992, when Suttle was 15, he shot 42-year-old Betty Jean Butler execution-style at a South Lansing park, Benjamin Davis Park, if you're curious. If you grew up in Lansing, you likely played t-ball or softball there, or soccer, something. Anyway, according to what little I could find on this case, Suttle claimed that he was in some sort of romantic relationship with Butler and that shooting her was an accident. But he shot her at point-blank range in the back of the head, and left her body on a dirt road at a playground. So that doesn't really sound like an accident to me, but what do I know? He was released from prison after serving 16 years, so if my math is correct, uh, and it very often is not, he was free for about two years before the New Year's Eve incident at Brannigan Brothers. How slash why Would a bar hire a convicted murderer as a bouncer? Well, A, 
Brannigan Brothers was run by an ex-con, but we'll get into that in a little bit. And two, Donald Settle wasn't technically a Brannigan Brothers employee. He was hired as a subcontractor of sorts by the bar's head of security, 31-year-old Austin Smith of Grand Ledge. Smith paid Settle $50 a night to work security, but after he billy-clubbed a patron inside the bar on New Year's Eve, he was told to leave and not come back. He left, but then he returned with the billy club a little while later to collect his $50. So he was already pissed off and riled up when the headbutting incident with Travis Peterson occurred. But it was Austin Smith who led the charge against Peterson out into the streets of downtown Lansing. And it was Austin Smith who landed the blow that took Peterson to his knees. In fact, all of the men who ran the unarmed man down that night as he was trying to leave were either current, former, or off-the-clock employees of Brannigan's security team. In front of dozens of witnesses, the Brannigan boys mercilessly beat Travis Peterson like a pack of wolves tearing at a piece of meat, according to one witness, then left him lying face down in the street in a pool of his own blood. Peterson died two days later from blunt force trauma. Austin Smith and Donald Suttle were arrested and charged with second-degree murder, None of the other men involved faced charges at all. Donald Suttle was convicted and sentenced to 33 to 50 years in prison. Austin Smith went to trial twice, once in 2012 and once in 2014. Both times, a mistrial was declared due to a hung jury. Travis Peterson's family filed a civil suit against Brannigan Brothers, but the bar was ultimately deemed not responsible for Travis's death even though he was chased out of the bar by the Brannigan boys and beaten to death in the middle of the street. Fucking terrible. But why are we talking about this case, which has nothing at all to do with Brandon Michener? Because following the death of Travis Peterson, Brannigan brothers closed down. You can't see me right now, but I'm doing air quotes around the word closed down. Uh, In 2014, the bar was operating under the name Suits Tavern, which was owned at least partially by the man who'd been the manager at Brannigan Brothers. So basically they just changed their name, changed their decor, and tried to shake off their image as a murder bar. But this man, the manager slash owner, was also an ex-con. We'll call him V. V served time in federal prison in the 90s on conspiracy and bank fraud charges and was investigated again in 2007 for real estate fraud. So this was the guy, or one of the guys at least, running the show at Brannigan Brothers when a bar patron was murdered in the street by the establishment's bouncers in 2012, and the guy still running the show two years later when a lavish birthday party he threw for his son, ended in tragedy. And here's where our thus far very disjointed stories merge. The birthday party Brandon Michener attended on June 28, 2014 was that party for V's son. All of the boys met at Suits Tavern, where a party bus paid for by V picked them up and drove them around to bars all over the city, where V used his connections to arrange for open tabs. The result was that the boys, all of the boys, wound up much drunker than most 21-year-olds can afford to get during a night out on the town. 
because they didn't have to use their money from their part-time jobs. Big Daddy V was paying for all of it. And at the end of the night, when the boys were so drunk that they were blacking out, throwing up, having difficulty standing, they returned to Suits Tavern, nay, Brannigan Brothers, and that's where the real trouble began. There are so many unknowns about that night, so I'm going to start with what we do know. June 28, 2014 was a Saturday. It was a sticky hot summer night, 85 degrees and humid. Brandon Michener, who had recently turned 22, spent the day with his family celebrating his father's birthday. That night, he would attend another birthday celebration, this one aboard a party bus. While he was friendly with the birthday boy and he knew some of the other attendees, uh, it was his business partner who had convinced him to go. They would drive into Lansing together in Brandon's car, go wherever the party bus took them, and at the end of the night, they would leave together and go back to Grand Ledge where one of the boys from the bus was having a house party. They would all spend the night, and the next morning, Brandon was going to get up early and drive to Kalamazoo to visit his new girlfriend. Uh, But Brandon had a secret. After much thought and contemplation, he decided to end his business partnership with his old high school buddy and take over the clothing line himself. He confided in a friend earlier that day that he was going to break the news to his business partner that night. It's unclear if or when Brandon broached the topic of parting ways with his business partner that night. Would he have done it on the drive into Lansing when it was just the two of them to get it out of the way, or would he wait until the end of the night? Nobody knows, and Brandon can't tell us. So Brandon, his business partner, the birthday boy, and a few other friends spent the evening aboard the Party Bus Express. They stopped at several bars in Lansing and East Lansing and took full advantage of the open tab at each location, paid for by the birthday boy's father, an ex-con who owned and operated a Lansing bar with a killer reputation, and not in a good way. By the time the bus returned to Suits Tavern around midnight, most of the boys were incredibly intoxicated. All of the boys, actually, uh, all but one. One of the partygoers later told police that he was sober that night. He was on probation, and he didn't want to get into any trouble. So his account of what happened in front of Suits Tavern is the most reliable, if he's being honest. According to Sober Guy, as the boys were discussing what to do next, um, hit up some additional bars before going home, or head back to Grand Ledge to a house party one of the boys was throwing, Brandon got sick and vomited on the sidewalk. He correctly recognized that he was too drunk to keep partying, and he told his friends he was going home. And here's problem number one. These boys, most of them from Grand Ledge, all drove themselves into Lansing then proceeded to get excessively intoxicated on the dime of the birthday boy's father from the safety of a party bus, and then were just turned loose at the end of the night to get back into their own cars and drive back home. Drunk. Brandon's car was parked directly in front of Instiprints in downtown Lansing about a block north of Suits Tavern. But when Brandon started off on his own, visibly intoxicated, down Washington Avenue that night— Intent on going home, he didn't head north. He headed south. And nobody stopped him or told him he was going the wrong way. One person did go after him, though. Brandon's business partner, who he'd been at odds with in recent weeks, who he'd planned to cut ties with that night, 
who'd convinced him to attend the festivities, despite the fact that this was not a group of boys that Brandon typically hung out with, that boy followed Brandon into the darkness. The young man would later tell police that he followed Brandon to make sure he didn't try to get into his car and drive away. He was too drunk to drive, and everyone at the party that night knew it. Also, Brandon was his ride that night, so no one thought anything of it when the two men walked off, away from the group, and away from Brandon's car. Some of the boys went to Eden Rock, a bar across the street from Suits Tavern, while others headed back to Grand Ledge to the house party they all planned to end up at by the end of the night. But what about Brandon and his business partner? If you live in Lansing, there's a good chance you found yourself stumbling through the streets of downtown in the middle of the night once or twice, either a little or a lot intoxicated after a night of bar hopping. Guilty. But there's a danger about wandering aimlessly downtown or in Rio Town or in Old Town, especially when you're drunk and you don't know what you're doing and when it's dark and you can't really see where you're going. Because nestled among the businesses and bars and neighborhoods and houses is the Grand River, a massive, dangerous body of water that's claimed many lives over the years. The Grand River is Michigan's largest river, spanning 252 miles. Its headwaters, which is apparently a term, are fed by natural springs in Hillsdale County's Somerset Township south of Jackson. From there, the river... The river? The river travels north through Lansing, then west toward Grand Rapids, until it reaches Lake Michigan at Grand Haven. These are all just words if you're not from Michigan, but if you're local, I'm sure you can kind of picture this route. And if you're not from Michigan, there's this thing called Google Maps. The Grand spans eight counties and nine cities in lower Michigan. It creeps through Lansing's landscape like a venomous snake, lethal and unforgiving, and it pops up in places you don't expect. Case in point, my bookshop in Rio Town. When we were first moving stuff in, one day I was going back and forth to and from the car, and it was early spring. It was still pretty cold, but there were bugs buzzing everywhere. I even saw a mosquito in March, in early March. Mosquitoes are a summer problem, not an early March problem. It took me a little while, but I realized that the reason I was seeing these bugs was because I was close to the river, which I knew that wink and blink and a nod are near the river. My shop is near the wink and blink and a nod. So I knew that I was close to the river, but I was a bit shocked when I walked to the edge of my parking lot and realized that the river was right there, like directly behind my store, because you can't see it from the sidewalk or from where I park my car, not until you get right up to it, really. And that's what makes it so dangerous because it sneaks up on you even when you know it's there. Back to the night of June 28, 2014. Brandon Mitchner and his business partner, both heavily intoxicated, set off going the wrong way down Washington Avenue sometime after midnight. So technically, we're into the morning of June 29th now. June 29th, an important day in the Mitchner household. Stephen's birthday, his and Shirley's anniversary, a celebration of the Mitchner family. Somehow, the boys wound up in Rio Town, which the drag they were on downtown was on Washington. Rio Town's main corridor is on Washington, so it's a straight shot, and the two neighborhoods are only about a mile apart. But to get from downtown to Rio Town, you have to cross the highway over a bridge, past this really weird looking uh, power substation, 
The difference between the two neighborhoods is noticeable and substantial. Rio Town is where the GM Assembly plant and Wink and Blinken and Nod are. Downtown, 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 downtown is where the cobblestone streets and the state capitol are. And I just find it hard to believe that at no point did either of the boys realize that they were going the wrong way. So that begs the question, where were they going? Beerfest had long since closed down, although the barricades were still up in the streets, making the area a little hard to navigate. There are some great bars in Rio Town, but Brandon didn't want to go to another bar. He wanted to go home. And while he had no business driving, he was now over a mile away from his vehicle instead of just a block down the road from it where he started. It's like that poem, Wink and Blink and a Nod. Where are you going? The boys passed my shop on Washington, which at the time was a record store, the Record Lounge. And then when they reached South Street at the end of my block, they turned west or right for those who are directionally challenged like myself, which makes no sense at all. There is nothing down that way except for danger. There's an entrance to the parking lot I park my car in every day. There are two businesses on the south side of the street, which would not have been and were not open at midnight 1 a.m. There's an apartment building on the north side of the street. And then there's the river. South Street dead ends at the Grand River in dangerous fashion. There's no riverbank or easy transition from land to water. There's a guardrail at the end of South Street. And just beyond that, like two feet beyond that, a 30-foot drop down a rocky embankment, almost straight down. The apartment building located at 124 South Street had, has, an east-facing surveillance camera pointed at the intersection of South Street and South Washington Avenue. Because the video is facing away from the river, it doesn't capture the last few seconds of Brandon Michener's life, but it captures everything before and everything after. Brandon and his business partner first appear on camera at 12.26 and 43 seconds a.m., so just a little after midnight. The business partner is ahead of Brandon at first, but then Brandon kind of crosses and stumbles in front of him. You can't see the boys' faces in the video, but you can tell who's who because Brandon is wearing a hat and his business partner is not. Brandon is very clearly intoxicated. He can barely walk. The business partner, on the other hand, appears pretty alert. As the boys pass in front of the apartment building at 124 South Just before they disappear from the frame, the business partner puts his phone up to his ear. Whether to make or take a call is unclear. And then the boys are gone. They go off screen at 12.27 a.m. on the dot. For 11 seconds, there is no movement at all on the surveillance video, aside from the slight sway of branches moving with the wind. And then... At 12.27 and 11 seconds, the business partner bursts back into the frame. He's in the street and he's running away from the river. Fast. Five seconds later, he's out of the scope of the surveillance camera once again. Two minutes and eight seconds later, at 12.29 and 24 seconds, the business partner reappears. He's walking down the sidewalk back toward the river. 
as he passes the apartment building, he studies it hard. To me, it looks like he's trying to determine whether anyone's awake or paying attention or aware that something is wrong. But that's just me. At 12.29 and 37 seconds, the business partner is out of the camera's range again, back at the river's edge. This time he's gone for 17 seconds. He reappears at 12.29 and 54 seconds, jogging away from the river, back toward South Washington. Not as fast or as frantically as he ran away from the scene the first time, but still running. At 12.30 and zero seconds, he disappears again, and this time, he doesn't come back. 11 seconds. Sometime between 12.27 a.m. and 12.27 and 11 seconds on June 29, 2014, his father's 57th birthday and his parents' 29th wedding anniversary, 22-year-old Brandon Michener went into the Grand River and was gone. Police didn't get their first call about Brandon until about 12 hours later. At 11.58 a.m., Brandon's business partner called police and reported him missing. Officer Ethan Merlick met the business partner at the Dead End Street where Brandon was last seen. By this point, the business partner and calling him business partner, which I will continue to do, makes him sound oldish, but please keep in mind, like Brandon, he was just a 21, 22-year-old kid. Anyway, by this point, The business partner had been at the river all morning. Multiple residents of the apartment houses nearby reported seeing him and another young man running up and down the river bank searching for something as early as 10 a.m. This is what the business partner told the police officer, per the official police report. He said that when Brandon wandered away from the rest of the group at Suits Tavern, he followed him. He couldn't slash wouldn't offer an explanation as to how or why he and Brandon walked the opposite direction from Brandon's car, which was parked a block north of the bar, and instead walked a full mile south to the dead end at South Street. That's about a 20-minute walk, walking at a normal pace, and Brandon was so intoxicated he could barely stand, so they probably weren't walking at a normal pace. The business partner told police that he was standing on the sidewalk in front of the apartment building located at 124 South Street, the one with the surveillance camera, when he heard a thud and thought Brandon fell over. He indicated a flat patch of grass just beyond the sidewalk as the spot he thought Brandon fell. So from where he says he was standing and where he thought Brandon fell, he absolutely would have been able to see him. That would be like you standing five feet away from me on level ground, you falling down on that level ground and me not being able to see you. That makes zero sense. Anyway, he said he thought Brandon was puking, so he wanted to give him some privacy and he ran back toward the Washington Street intersection to call a friend. This also makes no sense. One, there is no lack of cell service in this area to where he'd have to walk away, you know, leave where he was and walk a block to get service. Two, he was on the phone. When whatever happened to Brandon happened, you can clearly see him with his phone up to his ear when he walks out of range of the surveillance camera. And the two of them had been alone for at least 20 minutes at this point. Their friends were nowhere nearby. The business partner knew that. So help how? According to the business partner, 
Brandon had a habit of getting so intoxicated that he often vomited and passed out at parties. He'd already been vomiting that night. Everyone saw it. So why did he have to run away to make a phone call when he was already on his phone to look for friends that he knew weren't there that weren't going to offer Brandon any kind of help because they didn't help him when he was puking at Suits Tavern? It just doesn't make sense. But there was a reason it didn't make sense, according to the business partner. Like Brandon, he was also incredibly intoxicated. He looks pretty damn alert to me in that surveillance video, uh, and his blood alcohol level was never tested, so who knows? Anyway, according to the business partner, he ran back to the intersection of Washington Street and South Street, called a friend, the friend couldn't find him, the friends were literally on the same street. The downtown bars they were at and the intersection the business partner was at were all on Washington Avenue. They were on the same street. So he couldn't. his friends couldn't find him, so he started running and ran to a nearby gas station and got into a taxi. Listen, taxis? Don't just sit around the streets of Lansing. This is not New York City. He had to have had the presence of mind to call a taxi, give them his exact location, even though he couldn't give his friends that exact location, and he told the police the whole night was very blurry and I didn't know where I was at. If you didn't know where you were at, how did you call a taxi to where you were at? He said he was so drunk, he didn't remember how he got home or into bed. When he got up the next morning, he remembered that Brandon had fallen over. So he went back to the river with at least one other person to search for Brandon. He called jails and hospitals to see if Brandon had been arrested or hurt. He called Brandon's phone, which was going straight to voicemail. And finally, just before noon on the 29th, he called the police. Officer Merlick took Brandon's description and he issued a bolo, be on the lookout, He told the business partner to keep trying to contact Brandon and to get names and numbers for Brandon's family so that they could be contacted. One last thing that's very important to note from this particular police report, because the business partner gave a lot of statements, most of them contradictory of one another, and none of which made any sense. This is a direct quote from the police report, minus the name. Blank indicated the flat area near the sidewalk as the location where Michener had fallen. Blank made no indication that Michener would have made it to the adjacent riverbank area. At this point, Brandon's family still had no idea that something terrible had happened to their beloved Brandino. Shirley and Stephen were on their way to Tampa. Brandon was 22, so it's not like he had a curfew or was supposed to be home by a specific time. But he was supposed to be home, and it wasn't like him to just disappear and not call and not check in. He had those plans for that Sunday morning, the 29th. He was supposed to drive to Kalamazoo to visit his girlfriend. She was expecting him between like 8, 9 a.m. He had texted her a couple of times during the party the night before, once to tell her that his friends were feeding him shots, and one final text that night that said, Ironically, R.I.P. Brandon. When he didn't arrive at her house the next morning and she couldn't get a hold of him, Brandon's girlfriend contacted one of his friends in Grand Ledge, a girl who knew a lot of the boys that he had been with at the party that night. So this friend reached out to some other friends, 
including the business partner, uh, and a very sketchy version of what happened after the party began to circulate. But one thing was clear. Brandon was missing. Brandon's sisters started searching for him, calling him. His phone was still going straight to voicemail. Uh, His brother-in-law went by his parents' house. He wasn't there. His car wasn't there. They also called the hospitals and jails. Nothing. So at this point, they called their parents in Florida, who had just arrived at the resort and opened the door to their room. They immediately began making plans to return home, didn't even have time to unpack their bags. The family was told that Brandon's car was still sitting outside Instiprints in downtown Lansing on Washington Avenue, a block north of Suits Tavern, where he'd parked it before getting on the party bus the night before. So Brandon's sister went to the location and called 911. This was between 6 and 7 p.m. on the 29th, so Brandon's been missing for 18, 19 hours at this point. The same police officer, Officer Ethan Murlock from earlier in the day, responded to the call. The business partner met them at the car. It's unclear how he knew they were there. It almost sounds from the police report like he was in contact with Brandon's sister and he agreed to meet them there. The business partner took the officer and Brandon's sister back to the dead end on South Street where he last saw Brandon. But this time, his story was a bit different. It had already changed since about noon that day when he first met Officer Murlock at the scene of Brandon's disappearance. This, again, is a direct quote from Officer Murlock's police report. He stated that he thinks Michener might have gone over the edge. Originally, he pointed to the area near the sidewalk near 124 South. He was now near the tree line, pointing down the riverbank as a possible location where Michener could have fallen. Looking in this new area, closer to the river for clues, Brandon's sister almost immediately spotted the hat that Brandon had been wearing that night, which you see him wearing in the surveillance video. Then, as they looked down the embankment further, which again, it's very nearly a straight drop down, it's, it's very steep. They spotted one of Brandon's shoes. There were some deep gouges in their dirt and broken branches like someone had fallen or skidded down the embankment. And if someone had fallen from that location down that embankment, they surely would have gone into the water. There was nowhere else they could have gone. There's no shoreline, nothing. It's just straight down into the water. But Brandon was a strong swimmer. He was very athletic, in great shape. Even if he hadn't been too inebriated to stand up straight, a fall from that high into water that deep with a current that strong, Brandon wouldn't have stood a chance. No one would have. What happened to 22-year-old Brandon Michener started to become crystal clear, but nobody wanted to believe it. Backup arrived on scene. Officers called the dive team, but were told that due to the amount of time that had passed since Brandon went into the water, going on 20 hours at this point, theirs would be a recovery mission, not a rescue mission. And since it was so late in the evening, it would be pitch black by the time they arrived and got ready to search. Nighttime dives are risky and often unsuccessful, so they're only done if there's a chance of actual rescue. And 20 hours after Brandon went into the water, if he was still in the water, there would be no rescue. As arrangements were being made for the dive team to come out the next day, a neighbor went out to where everyone was gathered and told them that he'd heard two men arguing the night before around one o'clock in the morning. The neighbor also said that um, they'd all been complaining for years about the steep drop-off into the river 
right in the middle of a neighborhood with absolutely no barricade around it. Those are things we're going to talk about further, the arguing men and the unsafe conditions around the river. But first, let's find Brandon. The next morning, Monday, June 30th, as Shirley and Stephen began their journey home from Florida, members of the Michener family gathered at the location where Brandon was believed to have fallen. A short time later, the dive team arrived. They parked at the Elm Street Bridge about a block north from where Brandon disappeared. The Michners joined them, and it was actually Brandon's brother-in-law that pointed him out to the dive team just before 1 p.m. on June 30th. By the time Brandon's parents arrived back at the Detroit airport, their son's body had been found, and family had to break the news to them that Brandon was dead. An autopsy conducted the following day revealed that Brandon had drowned with a blood alcohol level of 0.22, nearly three times the legal limit. After speaking to the boys on the party bus that night and the people who lived near the scene, after reviewing the video of Brandon's last seconds alive on this earth, authorities ruled Brandon's death accidental, and his file was closed. But this is not the end of Brandon's story. Not by a long shot. Because there are so many questions. Too many questions to just close the book on it. And for Brandon Michener's family, there is no healing There is no peace. There is no closure until those questions are answered. I want to pause right here for a minute to give you all a moment to breathe. I know that this is a really hard one. It's hard for me, and I feel like there's just no unawkward segue here, but I do need to thank uh, another of today's sponsors, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring today's episode and for helping to get the word out about Brandon's story. As I've mentioned here and there, I've got a new book coming out this summer called The Serial Killer Chronicles, so I've always got cereal on the brain, which is a problem because cereal is not good for you or me or anyone, unless that cereal is Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs and 140 calories in each serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-friendly, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. So none of the bad stuff and all of the good stuff, including flavor. It comes in a variety pack of its four most popular flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. I know that last time I told you guys I was partial to the fruity, and I do love me some fruity cereal, but I found that the chocolate like dry, milk-free, just a little bit of it, dry, dumped into a cup. It is such a great healthy alternative when I have the urge to grab something sweet and chocolatey. Visit magicspoon.com slash so dead to grab a variety pack and give it a try. Make sure to use code so dead at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product is backed with a 100% guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So grab yourself a delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash so dead and use code so dead to get $5 off your purchase. Thank you again to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. All right, back to our story. In the months and years following Brandon's death, his friend group more or less fell apart. The question, what happened to Brandon that night, loomed too heavily over this group of young adults just starting out in the world. They were, 
they are, split on what they think happened to Brandon. There are those who believe it was just a tragic accident, that Brandon drank too much, which is a fact, he did, and just walked off the edge of the sidewalk straight into the Grand River. It's certainly possible. There was nothing there to stop him. But why? If this area was so dangerous, why wasn't there a fence there to prevent exactly what happened to Brandon from happening? Well, there was a fence there. Once, Lansing's Board of Water and Light allegedly removed the fence to do some maintenance and never put it back up. According to Shirley, Brandon's mom, she was told that the Board of Water and Light couldn't be held liable in any way because no one ever contacted them and said, Hey, remember that fence you took down at the edge of a cliff that's in the middle of a fucking neighborhood? Yeah, you never put it back up and it's going to wind up killing someone. So, since no one informed the Board of Water and Light of their mistake, they're not responsible for it. Oh, love big corporations, don't you? One of the many things Shirley has fought for in Brandon's memory is to make that river bank safe. At her urging, the city of Lansing put up a small section of fence so that no one else can accidentally walk off the sidewalk and fall to their death. There's also now a warning sign warning of the steep drop-off. The city also planted a memorial tree and a plaque in Brandon's honor in front of the apartment building at 124 South Street. Here's the problem with that, though. Not the plaque and the tree. Those are wonderful. But that fence. Remember I told you that this is all literally in the backyard of my shop? The spot where Brandon went into the river is not the only incredibly dangerous spot like that in the immediate vicinity. Just on the other side of that apartment building, so at the end of my parking lot, there are two more completely open spots, camouflaged by foliage, nestled between a dumpster and a couple of concrete parking barriers, but still, very large sections where if someone didn't realize how close they were to the river, they could easily take a step too far and drop straight down 30 feet into the Grand River. If a child living in that apartment building or visiting Rio Town with mom or dad to go to a restaurant or a bookshop parked in that parking lot, and then the kid got away and went sprinting toward the end of the parking lot, they'd go straight down. They wouldn't have a chance. So when I look at that piece of fencing that was put up in Brandon's memory, and I do every day, it's nothing more than an empty gesture. If the city of Lansing truly wanted to prevent a tragedy like what happened to Brandon from happening to someone else, they would fence off these other incredibly dangerous spots as well. The easiest answer to the Brandon Mitchner mystery is to say that he was too drunk, he was too lost, and he didn't realize what dangerous territory he was walking into as he approached the dead end at South Street. It's plausible. A lot of the evidence supports it. And it ties things up with a neat little bow. It almost makes complete sense. It would make complete sense if Brandon had been alone. But he wasn't. His friend, his business partner, was right there beside him when he went into the water. And I can tell you this. I am one million percent convinced after watching the surveillance video. However, Brandon wound up in the river. His business partner saw it happen. You can see it in the frantic way that he ran away from the scene. His ever-changing version of events, I thought he fell on the sidewalk. I thought he was puking, so I left him alone. I thought 
Maybe he fell into the river, but it was steep and dark, and I wasn't sure. No. He knew. I keep talking about this video, which obviously I can't show you through the podcast, um, so I want you to know that the day that this episode is released, the video will be released also. It's not clear enough to see the boys' faces, so the identity of Brandon's business partner will remain protected, but it is clear enough to see that the business partner absolutely knew something awful had happened to Brandon. So to me, whether or not the business partner knew Brandon went into the water is not a question at all. He knew. The only question is, how did it happen? Did Brandon simply fall? Watching the way he was stumbling in that surveillance video, it's a million percent possible. Million percent. But then why didn't his business partner call for help? Why didn't he call 911? Why didn't he start screaming for help? He was standing directly outside an apartment building full of people that would have heard him. No one would have expected this kid to jump into the water after Brandon. If he had, the dive team would have likely pulled two bodies from the river instead of just one. But he had a cell phone in his hand up to his ear when Brandon went into the water. He used that phone to call his friends who somehow couldn't find him even though he was standing at Rio Town's main intersection. Um, this was 2014, not 1984. All he had to say was, I'm right across the street from the Rio Town pub, which was still open at that time of night, by the way. So why didn't he run into the bar and ask the people in the bar for help? The video clearly shows him go back to the site where Brandon fell before running away again. He looks pretty lucid to me. And even if he was drunk, there are things that sober you up pretty fucking quickly. I would think that watching your friend drop 30 feet into a fast-moving river would be one of those things. There were so many opportunities for him to find help. It's not like he was in the middle of nowhere. He had the presence of mind to call his friends, but he couldn't tell them where he was. He had the presence of mind to call a cab from down the road, and he had no problem telling them exactly where he was. And then he also gave them the address of his friend's house out in Grand Ledge that everyone was supposed to end up at that night. Which, it's been alleged that when he arrived at the house party that night, he said something along the lines of, we lost one tonight, boys. What? And why? Why did no one else question where Brandon was? Even the next morning when the business partner woke up and realized that Brandon had never made it to the party, he remembered enough about what happened to go back to the exact location where Brandon went into the river. Those are not the actions of someone who was too drunk to remember what happened, like he's been claiming all these years. They're just not. No, I believe that Brandon's friend and business partner absolutely saw what happened to him that night. And guess what? If Brandon fell on his own and the business partner saw it happen and just walked away, that's not illegal. There is no law in Michigan that says you are required to take action when you watch someone literally dying in front of you. Yeah, you heard me right. In the state of Michigan, it is not illegal to watch your friend fall 30 feet into a raging river and just walk away. It's actually shocking how few states have duty to act or duty to rescue laws. 
in the most recent article I read, there were only three. This could have changed since then, but the only three that were listed in the article I found were Minnesota, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Only states where it is illegal to ignore another human being in peril. What the fuck? So the next thing that Brandon Mishner's mom tried to change, aside from making the area where he fell safer, she fought to have a duty-to-act law enacted in Michigan. In 2019, State Representative Julie Brixie of Okemos introduced House Bill 4507, a duty-to-act bill, on Shirley's behalf. The law would require citizens, without putting themselves in danger, to give reasonable assistance to those in grave physical harm. The fact that something like this needs to be a law, A, and isn't one already, too, fucking infuriates me. It makes me so angry. Even with the law, the penalty for watching someone die without acting, without doing the bare minimum, the easiest thing in the world to do, call 911, the penalty would only be up to 90 days in jail and a fine of up to $500. Not nearly enough, if you ask me. But at least it would have been something. Because State Representative Graham Filler of DeWitt, who was the Committee on Judiciary Chairman at the time, would not allow the bill to move forward. Without providing an explanation, he allowed the bill to sit on his desk along with many others until it died. Shirley was disappointed but not defeated. She is now looking for someone to sponsor a new bill and to try to get it pushed through again. But seven years after her son's questionable death, she also wants something more. She wants his case reopened. She has appealed to the Lansing Police Department, the Ingham County Sheriff's Office, the Michigan State Police, and State Attorney General Dana Nessel, all to no avail. The Lansing Police Department is in charge of the investigation. It's their jurisdiction. They closed their investigation in 2014 with the promise that they would pursue any new leads. The Ingham County Sheriff's Office declined to review the LPD's investigation. The Michigan State Police did review the investigation. They determined that everything was up to snuff. But that wasn't, that isn't what Shirley wants. She wants a new investigation done by an outside agency. Thus far, she has not received a response to her pleas to the Michigan Attorney General's office. The whole duty-to-act thing, which should absolutely be a law, only comes into play if Brandon fell on his own. But what if he was pushed? There are certainly those that believe that to be the case, and their beliefs are not without merit. And if Brandon was pushed, was it an accident or was it intentional? It's entirely, entirely possible that Brandon's business partner shoved him, either messing around or annoyed with Brandon's drunken antics, didn't realize they were so close to the river. It's a very, very real possibility. I mean, like, it's, it's possible that Brandon was pushed, but that it was still an accident. And that would explain, I think, the reluctance to call 911. But here's the thing. Brandon didn't break his neck during the fall or die from blunt force trauma. He drowned. He was alive when he hit the water. So even if his business partner pushed him in accidentally, there was still time to save him, maybe. Maybe not, but we'll never know because he didn't even try. 
my opinion for what it's worth, and that's not much, but this is my podcast, so I get to give it, is that it's 50-50. Entirely possible and plausible that Brandon either fell on his own or was pushed in accidentally. The important thing to remember in either of these scenarios is that Brandon went into the water alive. However he got there, it was his friend's decision to walk away that ultimately killed him. Would rescuers have arrived in time to save Brandon if his business partner had called 911? Who knows? Nobody, because he didn't make the call. And there's a darker theory still. There are those who believe that Brandon was pushed to his death intentionally. Or even worse, that it was premeditated. Remember several hours ago in this episode when I mentioned how Brandon was planning to tell his business partner that night that he wanted out of the partnership? Is it possible that the boys had that conversation on the way to the party and that over the course of the night, the business partner allowed alcohol and anger to twist his mind and make him want to get back at Brandon? That he lured him down a dark, dead-end street in the middle of the night a mile from where they were supposed to be, and shoved him to his death intentionally? How horrific of a thought is that? But these are the thoughts that keep Shirley Michener up at night, the what-ifs, and there are some things, lots of things, that don't add up. So let's start with that text, the last one Brandon's girlfriend ever got from him, R.I.P. Brandon. And then four hours later, Brandon was dead. It's an eyebrow raiser for sure, but I do feel that this is just a really strange coincidence. My kids use the term RIP all the time. They don't actually say RIP, they say RIP. Um, So when I say or do something that's like embarrassing to them, they'll say RIP mom or cringe mom. When I send them a meme that I think is hilarious, I often just get back RIP. So As Brandon was getting more and more intoxicated, could he have texted his girlfriend, R.I.P. Brandon, as a joke, just kind of a reference to how wasted he was? That's certainly how she took it at the time. Also, his phone was dying, so it could have been a way for him to tell her that his phone was about to shut off. But when Brandon actually died just a few hours later, that gave the text a whole new meaning. We know that the text was sent hours before Brandon died, but Even if the timeline was in question, it's not, but even if it was, Brandon's phone was found in his back pocket when his body was recovered. And while there was certainly time for his business partner to push him into the river, either purposely or accidentally, there wasn't time for him to take his phone, text RIP Brandon, put the phone back in his pocket, and then push him. So if that text really was sent by someone else with ill intent, that would have been A- pretty damn stupid. And two, uh, it means that Brandon's death wasn't an accident at all, but premeditated murder. How did the boys wind up at the river so far from where they were headed? I think I explained this before, but there's literally nothing back there at the dead end of South Street. It just makes no sense for them to have even been there. And I'm being sincere when I tell you this. Every day, When I leave my shop and drive past the spot where Brandon went into the water, I ask him, where were you going? What were you doing back here? And the simple answer to that is they were drunk, Brandon especially. How drunk was his business partner? That's debatable. 
Um, I believe that he hides behind the, oh, I was drunk, so I don't know, I don't remember mask, because that's easy to do. When in reality, a lot of the actions he took that night indicate that if he wasn't sober before Brandon went into the water, he was certainly sober after. Why was the business partner's timeline so shifty? And why did his story keep changing? He told police that according to his phone log, he first called a friend for help at 12.56 a.m. Brandon went into the river at 12.27 a.m., according to the surveillance tape. So either the time on the surveillance tape was incorrect, which that's a possibility, or the business partner actually waited a full half hour before he called anyone. As far as his changing stories, that's easy. He was lying. He either tried to cover up a crime or cover his ass for a very unfortunate accident that resulted in the death of his friend, but his I was so drunk, I don't remember bullshit does not fly at all. One of the weirdest lies he told was this. When Brandon's friend contacted him the next day uh, on the behalf of Brandon's girlfriend, so remember, he didn't show up at the girlfriend's, she called a friend, that friend called the business partner, said, hey, do you know where Brandon is? He's not where he's supposed to be. The business partner said, what? He's not with you? I figured he'd be with you. This was around 3 or 4 p.m. on the 29th, several hours after the business partner had already called police to the scene and reported Brandon missing. Why in the world would he say something like that? He knew Brandon was missing. He reported him missing to the police. And then hours later, when someone called and said, hey, where's Brandon? He said, oh, he's not with you? That is so sketchy. And this is not hearsay. I watched the police interview with this girl myself. She was completely puzzled and shocked by it as well because it makes no sense. And what about that witness, the neighbor who said he saw two young men arguing around 1 a.m. at the dead end at the guardrail? Let's talk a bit more about that. So this is not hearsay either. None of this is actually. Unless I use the word allegedly to preface a sentence, this is all facts and quotes that I'm giving you. These are not things that people told me that they heard. These are things that are coming directly from the police report and the interrogation videos. Police questioned all of the residents of the apartment buildings located at that dead end, and there are a few of them back there. Most of them saw nothing, heard nothing. One of them conveniently had that surveillance video. But one man, who was not a resident of the apartments, but a visitor that night, had a pretty interesting story to tell. The man's ex-wife lived at an apartment building on the river just on the other side of the one located at 124 South Street. He was visiting his ex that night, very late at night, but that's none of my business, and he left about 1.20 a.m. He knows this because he texted his ex at 1.30 to let her know he made it home, and he lives about 10 minutes away. So at 1.20 a.m., he's pulling out of the parking lot onto South Street, headed toward Washington, and he sees two men standing at the guardrail at the dead end, right where Brandon went into the water. He could not see their faces. He couldn't tell what they were wearing because it was dark, but he heard one of them yell, I'll kill your ass, motherfucker. He also noticed a third man standing next to a gold Ford Explorer in the parking lot appearing to be waiting on the other two. So you hear this, or in my case, you read it, and at first you think, 
holy shit, someone saw the business partner threaten to kill Brandon and then he died. There was someone else there, a third person there. Maybe it was a setup. But then we go back to the timeline. This happened almost an hour after Brandon went into the water. So it wasn't Brandon standing at the dead end. But it could have been the business partner back at the scene with friends trying to find Brandon or hide evidence or something of that nature. Or it could have been two completely unrelated individuals threatening to kill one another at the edge of the cliff in the middle of the night, coincidentally where someone had just fallen and died a short time earlier. And then there's the autopsy report. It was, first of all, real hard to get through. Brandon didn't have any broken bones, massive wounds, or internal injuries. It was the river that killed him. Some believe that the lack of injuries indicate that there's no way he fell into the water, or even that he was pushed, that he had to have been thrown into the water. If he'd fallen down that rocky embankment, hitting trees and boulders along the way, there would have been signs of trauma on his body, and there weren't. And that's a good point. It's definitely something to consider. Um, But I'm not a medical professional, first of all, so I shouldn't even be talking right now, but I do know that people come out of crazy dangerous accidents without a scratch, whereas I can't even go on an early morning shopping trip without winding up in the ER with a broken arm. Brandon's body was very discolored when he was found from being in the water for so long, so any bruises wouldn't have been visible. Um, Is it hard to believe that someone could take a fall like that and not have visible injuries? Sure, but is it out of the question? The medical examiner didn't think so. There's something else, though. Over the years, Shirley Michener has been contacted numerous times by people who, quote-unquote, know what happened, who heard a firsthand or secondhand confession by the business partner. He admitted that he pushed him on purpose. He pushed him as a joke, and he didn't realize how far the fall was to the river. He knew Brandon could swim, so he thought he'd find his way out. He's confessed that he murdered Brandon, but he won't tell the police. He admitted that he saw Brandon dead in the water, but he panicked and ran. Which, let me interject here. It is not illegal to watch someone die and do nothing about it here in Michigan. It is, however, illegal to see a dead body and not report it. What in the hell kind of backwards-ass laws... This is not made up. None of this is made up. I've seen the emails and I've seen these texts that she's gotten and these conversations that she's had with people who contact her regularly and they promise to give her information. They promise to help her. They promise to talk to the police and then they disappear or worse. They start sending her nasty messages telling her to leave them alone or they're going to sue her. It just, this is a grieving mother and who, why I just... I don't understand. There are just, there's sick people in this world. Why would anyone cause her further pain? Why would anyone cause Brandon's family further pain like that? Brandon's friends, these boys, these witnesses, they want to move on. All of them. The business partner told Shirley as much when he met up with her less than two months after Brandon died. Miss Michener, that's in the past, he said. I have to put it behind me and move on with my life. And most of the boys from the party bus that night have done just that. Brandon's birthday just passed a few days ago on May 27th. He would have been 29. His friends are getting married, having babies. 
They all just want to move on. But you know what? I'm sorry. If you watched your friend fall into the Grand River and did nothing to help him, you don't get to move on. If you pushed your friend into the Grand River, either as an accident or with malice, you don't get to move on. If you weren't there that night, but you have information that would be beneficial to the investigation and you're withholding it out of fear or loyalty or whatever, you don't get to move on until she has answers that make sense. Shirley doesn't get to move on. So here's my plea to you, so dead listeners, because I know for a fact that some of you listening today know these boys involved in this story. The more time passes, the more guilt eats away at people, and the more people talk. Someone has heard something or seen something that, if nothing else, could help provide the Michners with closure. They deserve that. So if you think you have information about Brandon Michener's death, no matter how small or insignificant you think it is, please contact the Lansing Police Department. Make it your mission to do the right thing. Speaking of, earlier this year, Shirley Michener relaunched Brandon's clothing line, MIM, Make It Your Mission. If you'd like to help keep Brandon's dream of becoming a fashion designer alive, you can purchase MIM shirts, bags, hats, all kind of stuff at the website mim.shop. That's M-I-Y-M dot shop, S-H-O-P. Before I go today, uh, I just want to take a minute to talk to you about something because this is one of the things that bothers me the most about everything I've seen and heard and read about Brandon's case. Well, it all bothers me, but this just, I think about this part a lot. If you're a parent, you've likely said something along the lines of, if anything ever happened to my child, I would fill in the blank for your preference. For me, it's arson. If anything ever happened to my child, I would burn the entire city down to get answers. If my happy, healthy 22-year-old son, and I do have one of those, so I feel this story in my bones, if my son went to a party with his friends and was allowed to wander off on his own even though he was so intoxicated he could barely stand, then fell into the river and drowned as his friend who watched it happen ran away in the opposite direction and did nothing to help, and then the police basically told me, sorry about your luck, boys will be boys. I would burn the city down. Not literally, this is not like a threat of violence or arson. I'm just, you know, like, I would not stop. So to those people, to those organizations even, that treat Shirley Michener like a nuisance, who make her feel like she's crazy, who expect her to do anything other than continue to fight for justice for her son, shame on you. If you want her to stop asking questions, give her answers that make sense. All of this research, all of this evidence, all of this talking, and I find myself right back where I started asking the same question. What happened to Brandon Mishner. Did he fall? Was he pushed? I am, you might be surprised to hear, not an investigator, but I do usually have pretty good intuition and I can make pretty good informed decisions most of the time when I have the facts. And I fought hard to find every fact I could on this one. So 
I'm pretty confident in saying that I personally do not think that Brandon's death was premeditated murder. I know there are those who believe that, and I know that humans are capable of evil, terrible things. I just don't feel like it fits here. But even if Brandon's death was an accident, and that's kind of how I'm leaning, that doesn't mean people aren't responsible. The young man that watched Brandon fall into the river, possibly even pushed him in, whether it was intentional or not, he's responsible. The Lansing Board of Water and Light, who removed the fence that would have prevented this tragedy and didn't replace it until after Brandon's death, they're responsible. The city of Lansing, who fenced that danger off but has done nothing about the other spots just like it in the same area, we're talking less than half a mile. When it happens again, you'll be responsible. And the man who provided a group of young men with a party bus and unlimited alcohol at every bar in town so that his son would have a super fun birthday party without giving any thought as to who would monitor these kids so that they didn't get so intoxicated that they couldn't function without providing them a safe way home that night, he's responsible too. I think the most frustrating thing about this case is feeling like it was just a perfect storm of negligence from so many different sources. The bar owner, the business partner, the utility company, the city. And the end result is that the Michners no longer have their son. The least they deserve, the very least, is the truth. And so we'll end this story where we began it with a poem about Wink and Blinken and Nod, the only witnesses to Brandon's death besides Brandon who can't tell us what happened, and his business partner, who won't. Winkin' Blinkin' and Nod one night, sailed off in a wooden shoe, sailed on a river of crystal light into a sea of dew. Where are you going, and what do you wish? Where are you going, and what do you wish? I want to thank you all for coming to this very special Dead Talk today. My main sources for this story were the actual police files and interviews with Brandon's mother, Shirley, and others who knew the boys involved. But you can find a full list of resources on the So Dead website. If this story has moved you, and I hope that it has, we've got a lot of work to get done to honor Brandon's memory. There is a change.org petition to request that Michigan's Attorney General conduct a new investigation into Brandon's death. Please sign it. I'll post a link on the So Dead website. We've got to get that duty to act law going again here in Michigan. And for those of you not in Michigan, look to see if your states have such a law. Most of them don't. If not, let's make it happen. Lansing folks, especially my Rio Town neighbors, we've got to get the city of Lansing to make these cliffs along the river safer. Proper signage, fencing, guardrails, something. I'm sure there are lots more places around the city that are like this, but I know for a fact that there are two of them directly behind my store. Come see me. I'm happy to show them to you. Don't wait until someone else falls into the river and drowns to do something. Support the Michners by purchasing some MIM swag from MIM.shop. Again, it's M-I-Y-M shop. And again, if you know anything that might be beneficial to the investigation, please contact the Lansing Police Department directly. 
Because this episode was such a long one, we're going to skip the liquid cheese this week, but I promise I've got a couple good ones in the hopper for you. A new episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, always make it your mission to do the right thing. And let's make that a law too, okay? And of course, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. So